stand here. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Alright. Andrew, I'm gonna see if I can print this for you. Hi sweetheart, how you doing? This is from the week you were here, so I will give it to us and we forgot it last week, so <laughs> there you go. Okay, thanks. Yep. Andrew, what was the name again? Hey, hi. Yeah, thank you. One's from Bob.
you? I just turned them off. Oh, did you? And then by the Oh, okay. That's what I was kind of asking. Well, they're involved with Sterling. set which is the fourth set had nobody in there they, they all I mean they left after their third set it was it was packed we had a lot of people there just doing Christmas parties and that kind of stuff in there and as soon as the third set ended they went we're like so we just played for an empty house for the last hour but you know we had fun
Good morning. And Merry Christmas. <laughs> Didn't think I, I'd say that, did you? I told my brother Jared this morning, after he told me to dress festive for today, I'm not comfortable with festive. He said, suck it up and get out there and do it. So here we are. <laughs> well, I do tend to embellish a little, so. Uh, I'm a little bit confused with this number five message. There will be no evening service for the next two weeks. Oh, that's because we're having a program tonight. Okay. Uh, six o'clock, desserts, finger foods. Did I mention that I brought pie? Yeah. We got pie. So it uh, promises to be a, a very good program tonight. Uh, a lot of you are involved, and our gratitude uh, knows no depths uh, because of the commitment of our brother and, and all who are involved in this. So come on out and support us, and uh, I think a blessing is to be had by all. Do we have any updates on any of our members that aren't here? Terry? I was able to talk to Tom Roth. He said he's doing well. He's getting close to home. Okay. We won't count on seeing him tonight? I doubt it. Not, not likely. Okay. Ken, you're feeling better? And, and how's Della? Well, she's <coughs> doing a little better. She's not 24-7. <coughs> has to wear a light vest. Considering a pacemaker, bypass, pacemaker. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. They don't build them for comfort either. They, if one of the electrodes get a little twisted, that's got an alarm and it shows it on a screen, and you have to go around and recheck it and then reprogram it. negative about a lot of things anymore. They don't, they don't watch it work. They don't, then they wouldn't have to even consider a pacemaker. Yeah. They don't make it for comfort. Well, it sounds like uh, she's probably going to wind up being an awful light sleeper because of that. And her, well, she ended up sleep, her sleep habit has changed. She tries to stay up a little later at night because, well, we was going, going to bed pretty early, and like 3 o'clock, she's got seven or eight hours sleep, which your body thinks is enough. Well, she's staying up a little later so she could sleep longer in the morning instead of getting up in the middle of the night. So we're keeping on going. 
convey to her our uh, our love and prayers for her. And brethren, I think uh, we need to keep her in constant prayer as yeah, well. Uh, another, any of our church family that would want to pay us a visit, give us a five-minute notice. <laughs> five minutes? Yeah. What you come into is what you see. It'd, it'd take me about six hours <laughs> to get ready to clean my place up and make it lookable. So, boy, I envy you. <laughs> Mercy, my dear, how are you feeling these days? Uh, you are in our prayers as well, my dear, my dear sister. Any other uh, Phil, comments? Raise your voice just a little bit, okay? Raise my voice? Yeah. Can't hear what you're saying. How's that? that oh. <laughs> okay, how's this? Better? No. No? No? You're going to have to talk louder. Okay. I will talk louder. <laughs> With that said, our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23, and that will be page 1754 in your pew Bibles.
you stand with us as we begin our service in prayer? Doug, may I prevail upon you to pray. Amen. Please remain standing. Will you take your red hymnal and turn to number 211 in the red? <clears throat> in the red, sorry. I changed it. 211 in the red.
Thank you. You may be seated. If you noticed in your bulletin, it says there's a special at this point and not a congregational hymn. Um, last week ago, yesterday, last Saturday, Pastor asked if someone in our household could sing a song. And I said, sure. And then Elizabeth got sick, and then um, we didn't come to church. And so that, this is the song that was for last week's message, but we delayed it till today. And I need a drink. I'm struggling. I'm very sorry. <clears throat> yeah, let's not change it now because it'll scream it. <laughs> Thank you. 
<clears throat> Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, page 1524 in your pew Bible. When you come to that, please stand with us. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Father in heaven, may you add your blessings to this reading, that it may fill our hearts with joy and contemplation. In the name of Christ we ask. Amen. Will you take your brown hymnals this time and turn to number 155, 155 in the brown. Thank you. 
Our scripture text this morning is Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. In our last study, we considered the incarnation from the theological standpoint of Christ emptying himself of his existence in a realm equal to God the Father to assume the place of a human being and to become the servant of men. Simply put, he laid aside his godly glory and became a flesh and blood, living, breathing human being. We noted that he was sent on a mission by God the Father, the mission to bring redemption to his people and light, spiritual light, to a darkened world. Well, how dark was the world before God's Son came? By darkness, I am not referring to the change between morning and evening. But I'm talking about a philosophical, moral, and ethical humanitarian darkness. What was the world like before the advent of Christ? How did people act? What were governments like? What did people do for entertainment? What about education? What was the role in society? For women and children. What humanitarian organizations were in place? Hospitals, orphanages, shelters for the homeless. What was being done for widows? The sick, the poor. Well, we shall see this morning that the world without Christ, was not a world that you and I would have wanted to inhabit. It was not a pleasant, peaceful place to live and raise a family. It was steeped in darkness and superstition, in the occult, and everything demoralizing and corrupt. Let us remember it resulted in a flood of great judgment because of God's anger, which is the way the world lived. Let's begin with an historical overview. When we think of great people who have affected our society, our minds might go to people like Edison who harnessed electricity and gave us many of the conveniences associated with electricity. Or you might think of Henry Ford, who, although not the inventor of the automobile, nonetheless developed a means of mass manufacturing, which placed a car reasonable price for everyone. We might think of Jonas Salk, who gave us the vaccine against polio. I was a youngster when that polio became available. So I remember that. 
And I remember my mom being a nurse, was very diligent in trying to get us the polio vaccine as kids. What about Ben Franklin, whose eyeglasses restored good vision to millions of nearsighted and farsighted people? Yet all of these people, and many others who could be named, have made their niche in rather limited areas. They have affected society in mobility, cars, or energy, electricity, or in medicine. But of Jesus Christ, God's Son, it can be shown that he has transformed virtually every area of man's domain and has left nothing untouched as a result of his birth and entrance into our world. His kingdom has grown. His church has prevailed. And the forces of hell have not been able to overthrow them. So significant is his arrival, that all of time is posted in reference to his person, and all of history is dated either B.C., before Christ, or A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. All of history. Even the enemies of Christ <laughs> must date their correspondence and write their checks, their legal transactions sign, and order their lives according to the Christian calendar. I wonder if they know that. Probably they don't. Great men like Alexander the Great, or Ptolemy, or Caesar Augustus, or great women like Cleopatra, they've come and gone. But their graves house bodies which have returned to dust and their souls await the final judgment. But no one remembers them. No one worships them. No one serves them or eagerly awaits their instruction. Napoleon said, I search in vain in history to find the similar to Jesus Christ or anything which can approach the gospel. Nations pass away, thrones crumble, but the church remains. End quote from Napoleon. At Christmas time each year, the classic film, It's a Wonderful Life, starring Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed, that's aired on TV. And the point of the film is that every living person makes an impact of great significance on every other person. Jimmy Stewart's character contemplates suicide, and in so doing, he gets to see what the world would be like had he never been born. And what he sees is that there are gaping holes in the lives of his loved ones and friends because he was not there. Christ's influence on the world is mind-boggling 
His teaching, his behavior, his spiritual lessons contained in the gospel accounts, his redemptive work at the cross have touched the world in immeasurable ways. And the impact of his life has touched the world for good, though the enemies of Christ, they have a different view. Nietzsche, the 19th century atheist, philosopher, taught that God is dead. Remember that? We went through that here in the United States. And he wrote a book entitled The Antichrist, in which he said, and I'm quoting now, Nietzsche, I condemn Christianity. I bring against the Christian church the most terrible of all accusations that an accuser has ever had in his mouth. It is to me the greatest of all imaginable corruptions. The church has left nothing untouched by its depravity. It has turned every value into worthlessness and every truth into a lie and every integrity into baseness of soul. End quote. For Nietzsche, his heroes were, and I'm quoting again, a herd of blonde beasts of prey, a race of conquering masters. He's referring to the Teutonic tribes who were corrupted by Christianity because the missionaries went to the Teutonic tribes to bring them to Christ. This splendid ruling stock, he says, was corrupted. First, by the Catholic laudations of feminine virtues. Secondly, by the Puritan and plebeian ideals of the Reformation. And thirdly, by intermarriage with inferior stock. Does that sound like somebody you might know? His story? Nietzsche believed that Christianity introduced slave morals which shackled people to a certain standard of conduct and inhibited the free expression of man. Nietzsche was not pleased that Jesus was born. You will say, well, who cares what Nietzsche thinks? Hitler cared. Hitler cared. Hitler put into practice Nietzsche's philosophy. He wanted to uproot and destroy Christianity once he finished off the Jews. In a private conversation recorded by Hermann Roshing, Hitler said, and I quote, Historically speaking, the Christian religion is nothing but a Jewish sect. After the destruction of Judaism, the extinction of Christian slave morals must follow logically. So he's basically saying, once I get rid of the Jews, I'm going to turn my attention to the Christians. 
He goes on. I shall know the moment when to confront their Asiatic slave morals and our picture of the free man, the godlike man. We're fighting against the perversion of our soundest instincts. Ah, the god of the deserts, that crazed, stupid, vengeful, Asiatic despot with his powers to make laws. That person with which both Jews and Christians have spoiled and soiled the free, wonderful instincts of man and lowered them to the level of dog-like fright. H.K. Hitler was not thrilled that Christ was born. And 16 million lives are testimony to his hatred of Judaism and Christianity. Stalin and Mao are two others who tried to destroy Christianity through their cultural revolutions, which left 60 million dead in Russia and many more in China. Neither of them would have been pleased with the birth of Christ. Well, what about pagan views then and now? What was the world like without Christ? That's a good question. What did the pagan world of the pre-Christian era produce? Or to ask it another way, how did it view the value of human life? What did they think of children and women? Well, for one thing, children were dispensable. In the ancient world, child sacrifice was a common practice. Archaeologists excavating in ancient Carthage unearthed the cemetery near the pagan temple in which the remains of tiny babies were found. It was a cemetery to bury the infants. The remains offered in a sacrifice to pagan idols. Before the Jewish conquest of the land of Canaan, child sacrifice was one of those practices which God forbade to Israel and which he condemned in the Canaanites. Leviticus 18, verse 21, Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Moloch. Moloch was the god of the Ammonites. Leviticus 20, verse 1, Any Israelite or any alien living in Israel who gives any of his children to Moloch must be put to death. 
The people of the community are to stone him. I will set my face against that man and will cut him off from his people. For by giving his children to Molech, he has defied my sanctuary. He has profaned my holy name, prostituting himself to Molech. Consecrate yourselves. Be holy. Keep my decrees. Follow them. That gives you a good idea what the God of the Bible thought of these practices by the pagans. This prohibition against child sacrifice was one of the slave morals Nietzsche lamented in the Jewish God of the desert who made laws for the people lived by and thus destroyed, in Nietzsche's word, their noble instincts. Think of that. And as to God's vengeful posture towards people, it is interesting to note that it is God who alone, single-handedly, so to speak, comes to the rescue of children in a society which was bent on slaughtering their own offspring to satisfy the requests of a bloodthirsty idol, the idol of Molech. Paul wrote, We know that an idol is nothing. It's nothing at all in the world. That there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods... Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is what, but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4 and following. So here's Paul writing 4,000 years Later, and he's still talking to people, in this case the Corinthians, of the Greek-Roman world. He's talking to them about idols and the demands idolatry makes on people's belief systems. And in particular, how idolatry deals with ignorance and superstition. 4,000 years later. This is the same paganism in principle in which the Canaanites sacrificed their babies to Molech. We tend to think of the Greek and Roman cultures as being more sophisticated than the peoples of the bygone eras. But it was during these societies that abortion and infanticide were rampant. Abandonment was common. Babies were left outside the city walls for the wild animals to kill and to eat. Or to be picked up and molested by strangers. Or to simply die of exposure to the weather or starvation. A particular target were deformed babies, 
female babies or babies born to poor families. Only about half of the children born in Rome ever made it to age eight. It took the coming of Christ and his teaching to change all this. You remember his own life was threatened by Herod who sent his soldiers into Bethlehem to slaughter all the male children two years old and younger in an attempt to kill what he thought was going to be a rival to his throne. But Joseph, warned by an angel in a dream, took the baby Jesus and escaped in the night with Mary to Egypt. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 2. And it was this same Jesus who taught his disciples, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Matthew 19 verse 14. So children were given a new value by Christ. No longer were they to be shoved aside and relegated to the background somewhere. As though they were to be seen but not heard. which incidentally was a favorite expression of my grandmother. It was. We're sitting at the table all eating together, multiple families. The kids want to pipe in and give their, tell their stories of the day. Grandma would rebuke us and she would wave her finger at us and she would make the statement. Children are to be seen, not heard. Boy, that threw a damper over the whole dinner. But with Jesus, they were welcome to come into the very presence of Jesus as much as any adult. They were allowed to take up the master's time, so to speak, and to be granted the opportunity to learn of him as much as anyone else. This kind of teaching from Christ revolutionized the pagan view of children. Foundling homes, that's what they were called. Foundling homes were established for children rescued from the exposure walls of Rome. Orphanages were built for parentless children. Nursery centers were organized for babies. The Christian would sneak out at night in Rome, climb the Roman walls that surrounded the cities of Rome, and they would snatch up all the babies that were put up there to die, take them home, and rear them as their own. 
under the Christian emperors Constantine and Justinian children were granted important legal status. This is big. This is monumental. Legal status. Infant exposure on those Roman walls was outlawed. One writer of the second century wrote with obvious amazement, quote, Christians marry. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Wow. Revelation. And his amazement was due to this. Quote, that Christian parents stood out uniquely as those who, unlike their contemporary counterparts, did not kill their babies through abortion, infanticide, and abandonment. So even then and there, the testimony of the gospel went forth. Today, as America revitalizes a love for the occult and renounces its Christian roots, a neo-paganism has emerged in which, once again, it is often the Christian community, almost exclusively, which is fighting the battle against abortion and its wicked spin-offs, euthanasia, mercy killing, and the like. Once again, we are a people enamored with the murder of our children, especially of the retarded and the handicapped. We have returned to the days of Moloch the God of the Ammonites. And God's law against the sacrifice of children falls on deaf ears. There is, along with all of this, the pagan views towards women Consider the position of women in the pagan world. Prior to Christ, women were viewed as the property of their husbands. India, China, Greece, Rome, alike, viewed women as too incompetent to be independent. For example, Aristotle taught that women were somewhere between, eh, between a free man and a slave. Plato taught that if a man lived a cowardly life, he would come back to earth reincarnated as a woman. If a woman lived a cowardly life, she would be reincarnated as a bird. People, these were the brilliant minds of the Greek world. Brilliant in profound humanism, ignorant of God. In ancient Rome, the procedure of abandoning children or exposing them to death was practiced in far greater number on girls. Robin Fox in her book, 
pagans and Christians, points out that so many baby girls were being killed through exposure that adult girls were in short supply for marriage. And thus, their age at marriage tend to go low. This is the start of child brides. Kids being married off, age 12, 13. And without reference to sex, Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, said that the most merciful thing a parent could do with a baby born in a large family was to kill it. Thus abortion has become one of the major methods of birth control in America. Sad. Our modern pagan world is a little different little different than the ancient world. Two Norwegian women missionaries, Sophie Ruder and Anna Jacobson, found infanticide commonplace in 19th century China. Here's what they say. Quote, It is an exception that a couple would have more than one or two girls. If there would be more born, they would be disposed of immediately. It was done in different ways. She could simply be put out as food for wild dogs and wolves. The father would simply take her to a baby tower where she would soon die of exposure and starvation and be discovered by birds of prey. Others again would bury their little ones under the dirt floor where they were born. If there's a river flowing nearby, the children would be thrown into it. Remember Pharaoh doing that practice with the Hebrew children? Paganism. So Ruder and Jacobson themselves would daily tour the abandonment places. They would rescue the Chinese girls from death as much as they could. They would then rear those children, those girls, in the Christian faith. Today in China, a forced abortion policy is in place in which a couple is compelled by law to have no more than two children. Used to be one children, then they upped it and said, Well, you can have two children. All else must be killed through abortion. By law. In India, in times past, widows were burned on the funeral pyres 
of their deceased husbands in a practice called sati, a term meaning good woman. Obviously, the Hindu religion believed that the good woman followed her husband in death. When William Carey and other missionaries came to India with the gospel of Jesus Christ, they protested this practice along with the infanticide they saw. And only under repeated appeals to the British government was the practice of Sudi outlawed. Today in modern India, as Christianity wanes and new nationalism emerges, sex selection abortions are commonplace. So, if you wanted a boy and you got a girl... That unwanted baby girl was eliminated before birth. And may I say this is not unusual in many of the Far Eastern countries. Many of these pagan cultures like India created what they called child widows. Child widows. By which they conscripted young girls from their families and made them into temple prostitutes serving the male population in their idolatrous worship. That practice was evident in Corinth, Paul's day too, for he writes to the church at Corinth warning them, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? And he answers, never! Exclamation point. Flee from sexual immorality, writes the apostle. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. Dr. James Kennedy writes of a trip that he took in the Middle East in which he observed four men playing checkers, and while another man of lower class was plowing a field with two animals yoked together. He says that he recognized immediately that one of the animals was an ox, but he couldn't, he couldn't quite make out the, the second animal until they turned the corner and drew nearer, and he saw that the other one was a woman, probably the wife of one of those men, playing checkers. What a contrast it is to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ say to husbands, as he does say, love your wives. Love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Or again, husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Or again, you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. So there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel will change the culture.
And when our ladies lose the bloom of youth and their hair turns gray and their figure begins to age, when in death they are left whittled and alone, it is the Christian gospel which teaches us, quote, treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need, the widows who are in real need and left all alone, puts their hope in God. 1 Timothy 5, verse 4. And the text goes on to say that true widows are to be cared for by the church, while those who have relatives living are to be cared for by their families. And Paul writes in verse 8, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith. He is worse than an unbeliever. Wow, think about that. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. <coughs> Brethren, it is Christianity alone which has <coughs> excuse me, raised women <coughs> to a high level of esteem. <coughs> Higher than ever found in pagan cultures. It is sad that the feminist movement in our country blames Christianity for oppressing women when the very opposite is true. Today in pagan America, we have more rapes, more beatings of women, more pornography involving women, more obscene jokes about women, more characterizations directed depicting women as stupid or ignorant or worthless than ever existed in colonial America under the Puritans who preached and lived the gospel of Jesus Christ. Other things could be said about human dignity. The elderly of the Eskimo culture were set adrift on ice floes to die before the gospel came to them. Before the gospel came to them. The mood is that of former Colorado Governor Richard Lamb who put it bluntly when he said that the elderly had an obligation to die and get out of the way for younger people. He actually said that. What about slavery? The slave trade was opposed vehemently by William Wilberforce of England, a Christian man who was a member of the English Parliament who organized a group of evangelical Christians to fight the practice 
of importing slaves from Africa and the West Indies. For 20 years, he argued, he protested, till finally Parliament passed a bill to halt slave trade. And it took another 25 years to encourage that same Parliament to free all existing slaves in British-held territories. So 50 years he fought. On his deathbed, Wilberforce received word that Parliament had set aside 20 million pounds to release the slaves and that day, that day 700,000 British slaves were freed. We know that in our country, two-thirds of the Abolition Society of 1835 were ministers of the gospel. All of this because Christ was born. He is the man who changed the world. And then fourthly, Christianity has affected the way the world relates to the poor, the helpless, the indigent, and the downtrodden, and those that are shunned. When St. Lawrence, a deacon in the Christian church, whose generosity with the poor was well known, when he was confronted by a Roman official, in order to bring to him, bring before me the treasures of the church. What he brought were handicapped people <clears throat> who were poor and ill-clad, hungry, emaciated. And he told the official, these are the treasures of the church. For its response, the Romans roasted him to death on a gridiron. Today in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, there is a shelter for the homeless named after him the St. Lawrence Chapel, where food and housing and clothing and job training referrals and the gospel are given to people of the street. One scholar searching through the historical records concluded that the ancient world left no trace of any organized charitable efforts. It was a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Hospitality was hardly known. Every man just lived for himself. Look out of my way. Then Christ came, and with his great example of ministry to the poor, to the handicapped, to the demon-possessed, he changed the course of human history wherever his gospel was proclaimed. 
Jesus' teaching on the Good Samaritan alone has accounted for dozens of charitable works which bear that name. You count in Matthew 25, verse 35. Jesus said, I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes, so you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison. You came to visit me. This teaching applied in this way. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me, says Jesus. This alone became the impetus in the Christian church to look upon the needy in a different, different light than had ever been done before. They couldn't, they couldn't skirt Christ's words. They couldn't get around what he was. He, he, it's so plain what he expected them to do and how they were to live. Thus began a move, a revolution in thought concerning the poor. And that was the truth that through Christ himself was rich, though Christ was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. Thus in the New Testament, churches begin to send money to other churches which were impoverished, are under severe persecution for their faith. We remember we could see that in the book of Acts where the Macedonian churches gathered money and sent it to the church in Jerusalem because the church in Jerusalem under Rome was being persecuted. Those people were being arrested and put to death. Beyond caring for its own, the church reached out to minister to unbelievers. Emperor Julian wrote, quote, It is a disgraceful thing that when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Galileans, he's referring to the Christians, support both their own poor and ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. Wow. What a what an admission from a Roman emperor. The Christians are taking care of our sick and poor and emaciated and we're doing nothing. I give him credit for seeing that. God opened his eyes. George Muller opened orphanages in England which were completely supplied by faith in God alone. Do you know anything about it? He did not appeal for money. He did not appeal for food. He did not appeal for anything. He just prayed and every morning somebody a baker 
a butcher, somebody would drop off the leftover food that didn't sell the day before. This is before the time of refrigeration, you'll remember. So whatever was left over, you had to get rid of it fast or it would become spoiled. Every morning he would find something from some tradesman to feed his orphan kids. The YMCA, the YWCA, established in 1844 and 1855, respectively, greatly ministered to the needs of urban people. Originally, they preached the gospel, though today they are basically secular institutions. In every large city in America today, you can find missions in the poor part of town run by Christian people. These missions give out the gospel of life as well as food, believing that the man does not live by bread alone. I was involved in mission, one of those mission ministries in Chicago when I was a student at Moody, the Pacific Garden Mission, probably the largest mission in Chicago. And we take a bunch of kids down from Moody College. We'd preach the gospel and feed the people off the street. Religion in America, a survey group took a Gallup poll in 1990 entitled Religion and the Public Interest. And this is what they discovered. Here it is. Churches and synagogues contribute to America's social services more than any other non-government institution, including corporations. Every year, religious institutions contribute $19 billion dollars to care for children of the elderly, education, health, food for the hungry, housing for the homeless. What's more, they estimated that the dollar worth from church volunteers was worth another $6 billion a year. They also found that churches are some of the most cost-effective charitable organizations in society. The gospel makes men generous with their material goods and makes them servants of those less fortunate. Christ is the man who changed the world. Changed the world. Blacks were first educated by the Christian community. Prior to that, education was only for the elite. It was only for those who are, were the aristocrats. They didn't even bother trying to educate anybody else. Before that, all education was conducted 
privately by the church and by the family. The New England primers that were used. I remember these. And it's a little country school that I went to in Pennsylvania. A. A is for Adam's fall. We sinned all. B. Heaven to find the Bible mind. C. Christ crucified for sinners died. Say, that really sounds silly. Well, let me tell you, when you're in a country, one room school building, and you're getting taught the gospel as a little kid, I was there. Was great. was called the McGuffey Reader. Minister produced that. The old DeLauder Act of 1647 required education of all children when a town reached a population of 50 households. So you had to wait till you got 50 households. Then the law stepped in and said, you got to provide teachers. You gotta teach the kids. And under Calvin, all were to be educated, not just the elite. Codification of the languages helped to get the gospel to people in their native tongues. And Wycliffe. Bible translators were paramount in getting that done. Did you know that back in the old days in Europe, nobody had Bibles? They would chain a Bible to an outside lectern like this, only it would be made out of stone with a hook on it and a chain. And they would chain this huge Bible each day. Of course, if it was raining, they wouldn't do it. But they would, on good days, they would chain the Bible there in the morning, take it down at night. Chain it in the morning, take it down at night. Why? Because nobody had a personal Bible. Well, how'd they get a Bible? Pen in hand. Printed by hand. Wycliffe printed the first English Bible 200 years before Martin Luther and Calvin printed their Bibles. And 2.3 centuries before the King James Bible was printed.
These missions gave the gospel of life as well as food. Believing in the man does not live on bread alone. Religion in America, a survey group, took a Gallup poll in 1990, and it was called Religion and the Public Interest. This is what they discovered. Churches and synagogues contribute to America's social services more than any other non-governmental institution, including corporation. Every year, religion contributes more than $19 billion to care for children, the elderly, education, health, food for the hungry, housing for the homeless. What is more, they estimate that the dollar worth from such volunteers has come from the churches was worth another $6 billion per year. They also found that churches are some of the most cost-effective charitable organizations. The gospel makes men generous in their material goods and their material goods and makes them servants of those less fortunate. Christ is the man that changed the world. And in closing, I must say that the main change affected by Christ's coming was redemption for sinners. The pagan cultures are what they are because they are steeped in sin and wickedness. Even in modern cultures, man defines Everything through his own eyes and his own value system. But that value system is based on selfishness and greed and covetousness and hatred. And an all-consuming passion for power, prestige, self-praise. This is why man designs his own religions that are devoid of God and full of barbarian practices like human sacrifice and cannibalism and prostitution and plans to become wealthy and powerful. In other words, no righteous living in a self-made religion. But Jesus taught that if men would know the truth, that truth would set them free. He also taught that he alone was the truth and the life and that, that no man would come before God the Father except through him. If anything can be enlightened and highlighted in the man who changed the world, it is the truth that Jesus Christ, as the God-man, came into our world, was born as the sinless Son of God, grew up to become an adult who voluntarily laid down his life for sinners, taking in his body of the tree, the pain, the suffering, due the enemies of God. He effected an atonement which all the animal sacrifices of Israel history never accomplished and which all the ascetic and cruel practices of idolaters could never accomplish through self-abasement and the things they do to the body. You need Jesus Christ. The world needs Jesus Christ. He changed the world in his coming. He's willing to change you too. He was called Savior. He didn't give himself that name. God the Father gave him that name. You shall have a son be born to you 
and you shall call him Savior. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. That's the work of Christ. The man who changed the world. Our Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. And our world has missed Christ. To our shame. I think back to the days of the Puritans when they came to America and they came bearing the truth of the gospel. And they built churches and cities and town halls. They evangelized the natives, Indians that were here and brought them the gospel. They lived out the gospel in terms of their lifestyles and the world was changed. Now today we're in darker times because the light of the gospel has gone dim. Not totally out, but certainly dim. And people have no time for God anymore today. But they will have time for you, Lord. The day is coming. For the scripture says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of what we have done with Jesus Christ, the Savior. Boy, those are sobering words. Paul writes, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give this account. For us who know the Lord, it's going to be a joyous occasion because we've made our peace with God through Jesus. For the unbelieving, it will not be a case of joy, but of judgment. And the scripture says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus says they will be cast out into outer darkness. Today's the day of salvation. Still available, still here. Same Christ, the resurrected Lord. May you grant us faith this day and repentance too, in Christ's name. Amen. Our, clo <clears throat> our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal, number 273. When you find number 273, will you stand with me?
You know how privileged we are to have a, the Bible and have be able to possess our own copy. I got many Bibles at my house. I have a whole shelf full of Bibles. ESV, King James Version, many others. Bible societies have come up through the ranks of Christian community because they understood people aren't going to be saved unless they hear the word of God. They're not. This is the word of salvation. This is God's plan. This is what God wrote out as to how people are saved. Well, if they don't know this, they're going to stay in their paganism. They're going to worship at the some dumb idol that they carved. You know, Isaiah talks about this. It's so it's humorous, but it's also sad. He talks about them carving out an idol out of a block of wood, same block of wood, the other half that he don't use for the idol, he throws in the fireplace to warm his hands. And Isaiah says, it never dawns on them that the idol they carved out of the block of wood cannot save them, cannot keep them warm, cannot supply their needs. It's just the utter folly of their hearts. They're going to worship something they carved out of a log themselves. Well, that God is not a God to fear. Let me tell you. But the God of this book is. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what we've done with the gospel. Believe me, America has been blessed beyond words. European countries have been blessed beyond words. They had men like Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and Melanchthon living among them, preaching the gospel. Martin Luther. What have they done with it? Every man has gone his own way. And when they stand before God, they'll have nothing to say. All lips will be silent, except to confess their sin, but it'll be too late. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for our own personal copies of the Bible. We don't have to live in uh, idolatry. And we pray, Lord, that you will Bless the truth of your word to our hearts. And we do thank you for this one who changed the world, your beloved son, all that he accomplished and still accomplishes through the power of his spirit. Bless our study today. Bring us out on the Lord's day tonight. You might be praised in Christ's name. Amen. Jared, what's the plan for tonight? Six o'clock. Christmas program. Christmas program at six, is it? 
Are we doing program first and then eating, or we're doing like uh, desserts after? So sick. Finger foods too. Okay, six o'clock here. Thanks.
So this needs to come here. This needs to go there. We are moving things. So will you um, yeah, move that back? And we're going to move it over here. Hey, do you want to help him, Lydia? Help, help, help. Hannah, you can help me. I don't think. Yep. Right, it's going to go right here. We're just going to switch places. I know. It's, I'm going to keep it attached. It's long enough to reach over there. And the other one doesn't need a cord. Because I, I don't know if Phil's going to speak. Oh, 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 oh. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> oh, you're right? Yeah. 